Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. The cost associated with lower productivity and turnover downturn because of burnout has resulted in losses of around $322 billion annually, according to the World Economic Forum stats that I found from January this year. There is a wave of burnout with many of us trying to stay afloat in a pandemic and find a way to recharge where many of the tools we use, such as socialising, group exercise, and even holidays have been taken away. Today, I'm chatting to Wendy Nash, a meditation and wellbeing accountability coach. Her company name says it all, kindly cut the crap. To avoid burnout, you need to make courageous inquiry, but do it kindly, according to her mantra. Her interest arose from experiences as a young child growing up surrounded by family loss. This provided very early experience of situational burnout. Through her training and practice, she's gone on to realize deep understanding of this and other kinds of burnout, including ideological and personality-based forms. In essence, burnout is what happens when we we fail to pay attention to our psychological, moral and physical well-being and the result is that crash and burn feeling. With Wendy, she has a four-year somatic psychotherapy diploma, her Bachelor of Psychology Honours thesis studying the effects of loving-kindness meditation on pro-social behaviour and she's been practising loving-kindness and other meditation for almost two decades. All of these have been profoundly positive on her well-being and her relationships. And so with great pleasure, I welcome Wendy to the politics of everything. Thanks, Amber. That's a lovely introduction. I just, before we go on, I wanted to say just thanks for putting together the podcast series. I really enjoyed it. I've um, I've actually listened to quite a few of them. And I've just so you know, the impact of, of what I've listened to, I've bought the books from the productivity person, Dermot Crowley. Oh, fantastic. I just really liked his style. I thought he was so straightforward and really practical and, and said when and when not. So that was that was definitely a number one hit. I also really liked Hayley Dutton's conversations about dignity, self-worth and confidence for the refugees and how to seem like you have self-worth in the eyes of society when you have lost everything, your family, your money, your status, and how important that is for people who've just lost everything. So I really appreciated that interview. And I also think about Holly Ransom and her her sort of uh, mantra about change that if you walk by it says that you tacitly agree with it and I think about that I live in a moderately low income area and so I think about that and what's my responsibility to change so I just wanted to say how much I've appreciated that your skill and experience and I, I really I wanted to say thank you for including me in your project and for putting together the show and making a change you know you've oh. already made a change to me so there you go <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much. That is so different to usually how the podcast chat starts. I'm usually the one asking questions and making big statements. So I really appreciate that feedback. So talking to young young Wendy, 
Did you have a childhood career ambition and what was that and did you end up doing it in any way, shape or form? So not really. So when I was about 10 years old, I wanted to be a truckie. So there was a truckie strike at that time and there, the driver being interviewed, big handlebar moustache, it must have been 1975 or something, and he just talked about how he was always moving between Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne and seeing things, how things would droop and seeing different things all the time and he just... And, and so there was something inside of me that was really appreciative of that idea of always moving and seeing something different all the time. So I didn't become a truckie, but I did at one stage. I'll, I can let you know that later. But I did accidentally gain a driver's license for driving a tank. But that was actually just a, a mistake of, to do with translation. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was very sorry when I That's discovered hilarious. that I, was, I could no longer drive a tank because I missed my opportunity. So, but unfortunately, oh, just, <laughs> just because of my early life, and it's, as I, as you said in the intro, there was a bit of family loss, my education was quite a calamity. I'd actually been, by third grade, I'd been in three completely different forms of school. So I'd been in private schools, in alternative and public school. So I actually got really far behind and I never caught up. My parents were not the sort of hands-on people making sure that we did our homework. We wanted to watch TV a lot. And so they just, so we'd go, have we done it? Can we watch TV? Have you done your homework? Yep. And so that was the level of engagement. And so we actually felt really far behind my, my brothers as well. And we, I, I just daydreamed. That was my escape in life. Oh my goodness. Well, that's an interesting start to life. So obviously, as, you, as you've come to the expertise that you're sharing with us today, yeah. how would you define burnout? And how do you know if you're actually burnt out enough to really make that change? You're just having like a stressful week, a year, if you're in the middle of COVID, like how do you know that's not just a short-term thing that you might just need to recharge in short bursts as opposed to you're actually burnt out and we really need to recalibrate here? Yeah, so burnout is a cumulative thing. So it's when your body and mind collapse from going against yourself for a chronic period. And it's really about our own tendency to dismiss a voice that really needs to be heard. And some often it's really because we are overly positive. I know that it's important to think positively, but there's a time when that becomes a problem and we have these chronic sayings of, oh, I'll just push through or oh, they didn't really mean that. So if we're in a bad relationship, oh, it's not that bad, or I'll just get over it. And all these actually cause quite a lot of problems because if you do it over a long period of time, you're really not listening to yourself. So just to go into a little bit about what is burnout. So the main psychology researchers are Christina Maslach and Michael Leiter, who studied North American organisations. And so that's come out of the org psych field and they focus on behaviours such as exhaustion, cynicism and inefficacy or that sense of being powerless to change the situation. I actually see it slightly differently and it's actually sort of more a result of how our identity as a good person becomes compromised over a long period of time. So we can't match our identity with our behaviours. So the first form of burnout is one called moral injury. And this is this has come through on the idealistic fields like being a soldier or in the medical profession where the organisation wants you to work in a way that you feel is immoral or unethical. And in a corporate setting, which is I think probably where most of your listeners are at, 
basically it's that you might have to sack people but feel that that's not right or that's not your role and you're having to make these really big changes in people's lives and that's really not who you want to see, not how you want to see yourself. So your identity as a moral person is really questioned. Yeah, that, that really makes sense. I, I, I think a lot of people will identify, even if you're not in the corporate space, I think some of those feelings are probably quite universal for people. Yeah, that's right. So, But the chronicity of it is, you know, that the organisation is requiring you to do that and, and there's that yeah. sense of inefficacy and powerlessness about that. The second one is a personality style and the literature is emerging on that. So Gordon Parker from the Black Dog Institute has just started a conversation And basically this one comes instead of out of the the previous one, the moral injury comes out of PTSD literature. This one comes out of psychodynamic and psychotherapy literature. And this is about people who are really driven by a fear of failure and a fear of rejection. So they're absolutely nervous to say no. In fact, I, I don't even know that I know any people with this kind of personality style ever say no. It's just not part of the vocabulary. So there tends to be this real go, go, go and living on adrenaline. And often it's triggered by guilt until the body falls over. So it's there's this kind of really strong identity about being, the identity is embedded in the relationship to others. So your own body and mind are neglected. And one of the common kind of ways that I, I notice that this is about is when people kind of speak about how team members or other people aren't really dedicated to the cause they're not working hard enough. So for instance, I did have a client who worked at one of the big banks and she was working till 10 o'clock at night every night and she wouldn't relinquish that and she just thought her team weren't living up to the standards. So I have another client who's the CEO of a startup and he's so reluctant to say no that he actually won't turn right across the traffic, uh, oncoming traffic. He works late on weekends and he's a complete workaholic. He is, however, really good with his staff, very good interpersonal skills. And the third type is a situational one. So that's very much like the pandemic. So you've got the kids, homeschooling, work demands, lots of changes, not enough time to recover, and it goes on for a really long time. So we've been at this for 18 months, and that's really difficult. So it's really about your identity as being someone who is capable is now being undermined, and it's just... You've got this huge volume of work and you haven't got a supportive environment. Yeah, and I think it's uncharted territory for a lot of us, right? It's just it's not the same as maybe in a corporate where you could, you know, in a good corporate or a good business that you might work with or for, you could actually go to a HR department and say, look, I need some stress leave or I need a few doona days because we're all in this phase. It just sort of feels like there's no one else that's doing it any easier so it's hard one to kind of navigate I think sometimes and I guess I'd love some ideas about the best ways that we can try to recover if we are feeling that burnout and I think especially if you can't do something radical like quit your job which you know is obviously a one that you know if you hate your job and it's so stressful when you're working 24 7 but you might have mortgages and obviously commitments which mean that you, you can't do that or you run your own business people might feel a sense of shame to even say they're burnt out. So how can you do this in a way that's perhaps kind to yourself but also very much going to help you? Okay, so uh, like this this program is called The Politics of Everything. So I'm going to take a slightly political kind of slide if that's okay. So in the West, you know, we've 
historically paid little recognition to support. So servants were never seen, women's work is invisible. And so this current situation of under support is really just an extension of that way of looking at society. If you work 10 hours a week in a community where there were lots of people who had time to chinwag, you probably wouldn't get burnout. You might get other things, but that 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 wouldn't happen. So we can see this sort of withdrawal of support from society really a lot since World War II that for various reasons, good and bad, we've actually removed the support of religious institutions. So people left the church in the 1950s. And so all those committees and, you know, helping the old people or whatever, that that has gone. Family structure, pa- uh, parents were seen as irrelevant in the 1960s. So that support of the family had, had dwindled. The solidity of it, I guess, public services, that funding started to slow in the 1980s. Good employment conditions started to be undermined also in the 80s. And then affordable housing, a crisis since the 1990s. Welfare payments have become much more withdrawn and well below the poverty line at this point. And so if you've got a situation where, and now, of course, with technology, you actually don't even have physical interactions with people and friends. So you can't go to the HR department because, the, you know, you don't actually have contact with those people anymore. You That's right. It's just, yeah. It's just so like you sort of like feel like you're swimming without a life raft sometimes. Exactly. And so we actually have created an alienating society. So if you aren't burnt out, it's kind of a miracle because <laughs> really we've withdrawn everything that makes us connected to other people. So if you want to recover from burnout as quickly as possible, here are some things to reflect on, I guess. So the first thing is to ask for help. I think really that is the most important. I'm not saying that as a life coach. I'm really saying if you want to if put it out to Facebook and say you're, it's all falling apart or if you want to reach out to professionals or friends or family, whoever it is, just absolutely say that you need help. I think that is actually the most important. Another part is to care for the body. So those ordinary boring things like going to bed on time, doing exercise three times a week, drinking two litres of water a day, those things are really, really important. I like to put four mugs of water on my desk in the morning and then I've got one litre done by the time lunchtime arrives and so then I put another four in the afternoon and then I've drunk two litres of water and that just keeps me feeling like I'm not in a desert. Really important to stay hydrated. I think also when we're very sedentary at the moment, working at our desk, maybe longer hours or not, you know, not commuting and doing all the things we usually do where we might think about stopping to replenish ourselves, you know, just just a bit of self-care like that is really important and can really change your whole head. Absolutely. And so another way of looking at that replenishment is to start at look at what's coming in. So I think, you know, when you're feeling really depleted, it's like, oh, my God, I can't give anything else anymore. And basically, one of the a really strong antidote to that is actually looking at what is coming your way. So, for instance, if you live in a household with other people, somebody's making tea or coffee for you, maybe, or cooking or shopping, you know, to really think about that person's act of kindness and generosity 
to have done that, not to be grateful about it because I'm, I'm a bit funny about the grateful thing because I think that's more doing, but just really just to attend to the fact that they have done this thing and it starts to redress that imbalance of feeling like everything is going out and you start to notice what is coming in. And another thing which is, I think, really good for problem solving is, so I, I do the couch to 5K. I do it three times a week. I've got it on my app and I only need it, my trainer. So that's my my thing. And I, I have this question before I go for a run and I go, what am I not seeing about this problem, whether it's a client or whether it's another situation? And so... Just having that to kind of start my process means that I feel like I'm problem solving, but I don't need to be active about that. So what am I not seeing about this? And then then lastly, it's just completely changed my capacity to feel resourced about problem solving. It's amazing. So, And then the last thing that is also really important is to not compare. So don't compare that yesterday you could do it and today you can't or before the pandemic you could do it and you can't do it now and don't compare to how others are doing it so in social media land you know it's really easy to get caught up in passive scrolling and just think but they've got their act together maybe they do maybe they don't you don't really know how anybody else is doing so just try and relinquish the habit of comparing definitely really great and simple to do advice because I think sometimes obviously if you're burnt out you are feeling overwhelmed and making massive changes is probably the hardest thing to do even if you are at that breaking point I love your business name kindly cut the crap why does that name strike for you like what what made you name yourself something so bold and how can you leverage that into what you do to help your clients no matter who they are so I am bold actually (laughs) So I thought a long time what to call the business and I, I am a very direct and plain speaking person. I like to make it small thing and, you know, like that, you know, the hot water. I just like to make small things and make it simple. So it's really about cutting the crap. But it's, I I don't, and I don't want to, I found it a, quite a harsh thing, you know, it's cut the crap, you know, it's quite a hard, bold statement, as you said before. So I put the kindly at the front of it just to soften it, but it also means please, you know, and and it also means to be kind. So basically my thinking was that if you want it to be different, you need to change. But to change, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to remove what is excessive, and but the most important thing is to be kind. Like it's really, really central to be kind. And so when I talk about kindness, this is the kind of image that I think about. When I was 21, I had a uh, 21st birthday party and I had a crock on bush I don't know if you remember those cakes there oh I remember those I'm probably of a similar vintage <laughs> so there you go there'd be a whole generation going what is that so it's a huge cake about maybe I don't know 50 40 centimeters tall yeah the big the taller the better it's almost like a Christmas tree of cake I used to just remember the shape so of it very it's impressive. little profiterole ball stuffed with custard and then it's got these kind of caramel things on it and it's in a sort of an Eiffel Tower shape and So I collected it from the patisserie and um, somebody else was driving and one, so I needed to sit there, so my brother had to drive slowly, carefully, just going around the corners, making sure it wasn't going too bumpy. And I needed to make sure that the cake was held in a position where it wasn't 
where it was secure, but I also needed to be a little bit relaxed about it. Like if I had been really tight and holding it on, then I wouldn't, then it would have just the minute we swerved around a corner or hit a pothole or whatever it was, then that would have caused problems. So there's something about being really respectful of the situation and authentic and calm and just attending to what is there, but just be nice, you know, be nice to yourself, be kind to ourselves. So that's that's what it is. Well, when does burnout usually hit people hardest? In your experience, is there a peak in terms of your age and life cycle? Like I think about my, obviously, my own personal situation. I'm definitely in that sandwich generation, aging parents, children that still live at home and rely on me and they're sort of still young and can't be too independent, peak mortgage, peak business career cycle, lots going on. I could definitely see myself having a burnout at some point. I'm sure I have and sort of, you know, not recognised it till later. But can it happen earlier and later in life, even if you are perhaps not as compressed and compacted in all the things that you're trying to do? Yeah, so so I think there it varies according to the form of burnout. So the moral injury one where your morals are compromised, it's really when that there's been a lot of emotional investment in being a good guy and you now realise you're the bad guy. So it's sort of it's about how it's about your own emotional investment in your own moral world and what the organization is requesting for you to do, how you have to go against that. So it's the sort of chronicity of that. So it might be that you're a soldier and you've been there for a year, which isn't a very long time. You might be quite young, but nonetheless, there you're sort of realizing that it's you could be 22, but there is sort of the reason why you joined the armed forces isn't what you're going to do. So there's that's one. So you can be quite young. The personality style. My observation is that people tend to be in their late 30s, they start to get these systemic autoimmune diseases like skin diseases, they need to be hospitalised, or by the time they get to their 40s, they've got rheumatoid arthritis. And often I see them in the meditation classes when they're in lots of pain. They're usually overweight, so the knees, heart and thyroid are also having problems. So that tends to be more in the 40s, 40s and 50s. With the situational one, which is what you describe, where you've got people, you know, you're taking care of parents, you're taking care of children, you've got a full-on job. So that that will happen with time. My, my thinking is that when it's all really urgent, you can usually keep it together. Once things start to slow, then people get exhausted. It's like the exhaustion can finally emerge. So my sense is after this pandemic is starts and we we are allowed out of our houses I think quite a lot of people might get quite unwell unexpectedly and kind of well now I'm supposed to be able to get out and things are a bit easier and yet they've got sick so I'd probably change it according to what's going on so uh, does, does that answer your question it does. I think it's just being aware of it too when it's happening for you. And like you say, it may surprise you. It may not be, you know, like you say, the, people feel like, oh, I just would be so much happier or I'd feel less exhausted if I could just get back out there. But because we haven't done it for a long time, I think, yeah, like you say, it might be surprised us how, how challenging that might feel for, for a lot of people as well who've got used to this cocooned world in many ways of just your own immediate family or living on your own as well. Um, in a 24-7 world and obviously the lockdown of late, how can you avoid being so available but remain productive when 
things like, you know, the holidays where you put your out of office on and you are overseas and you're unavailable, for example, allows you to switch off. And even sort of our gyms and our usual kind of day-to-day outings are kind of been lost in some ways. Like I know for my experience, yeah, I could be at my desk from seven in the morning till whatever time because I don't have the day punctuated by school pickups or other sort of activities which are deemed acceptable breaks in some ways from from my business. How would you suggest that people kind of navigate that? Because, you know, it looks like it's here to stay on and off in some form, even once we're vaccinated. Yeah, so I think my phone has a bedtime uh, setting on the phone and I think there are a lot, uh, quite a lot of browsers and softwares which which s- sort of turn off work so I would say use the devices and turn them off. I must admit I do love turning off my phone at night. I tell people I'm pretty open even with clients and say unless it's an actual like serious emergency you're not going to get a text or an email from me after sort of 8 30 9 o'clock at night it's just not going to happen yeah so yeah so that's that's, that's really good yeah well. that's right so that's really good so don't answer everything so quickly don't be so productive don't be so attentive maybe wait a day so people don't get too habituated to you just answering everything instantly i think you know i was thinking about because it's school holidays now i think it's school holidays now it yeah. is school holidays. Oh, gosh, it's only halfway through week one. But it doesn't feel wildly different because I think, well, I'm in New South Wales, you know, they've introduced these kind of play date bubbles, but even that, it, it comes with layers of nuance and difficulty for some people. Yeah, it does seem to vary when the, how old the kids are and how much agency they have and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. And how many yeah. kids there are. But I think in terms of just lowering the standards at home, I think this, I'm hoping this is going to be the last school holidays where we're really locked in. So I, I think there does need to be that thing where you you might have to work or perhaps you can take leave from work. That's also another one. One of my little tricks is actually to schedule meetings for 45 minutes long so you get a 15-minute break between meetings so you're not going right back to back. So that's another way of just being able to get a couple of things done between meetings so it's not quite so backlogged at the end of the day. And I, you know, my big thing is just really reach out for support networks as much as possible. Fundamentally, if you've got kids and you've got a lot of domestic responsibilities, you actually can't be productive when you've got a lot of split attention. So I think there is some, this kindness thing is really important. So give yourself some slack. You know, you're not a machine. Not even machines work all the day and all time without being recharged or having updates. So you know, like you're only human, so definitely there. Cut yourself some slack. We have touched on this about parents burning out and there's been a whole sort of raft of media around that. I guess it's about educating ourselves to do this with kindness and I think in many ways our employers, if you are employed by somebody else or even your clients, if you are self-employed, allowing ourselves those kind of reality checks. Like, for example, I've just done a whole term again of homeschooling two children aged eight and 12. But just because I can work from home, the idea that, yes, I'm on a Zoom and they're on their Zoom and so let's be full fully productive all day is not that realistic, you know, even if my husband and I are both juggling that because you might be in middle management and you are required to be attending to staff during those working hours. How would we shift some of that thinking? Because, you know, we're almost two years into this pandemic. How do we make sure that we can educate, I guess, everybody about the benefits of of more kindness to preventing that kind of burnout, just that day-to-day burnout really? 
Yeah, so I've got a couple of things about that. I think that when it comes to educating, for instance, businesses, it was Are You OK Day the other day, and I got quite a lot of feedback from a few people because I posted something which says, yes, reach out to your employer. And when I looked at my own experience with people, my observation is whatever you do, don't reach out to your employer. It just backfires. It would be really lovely if HR teams and directors and managers were warm and supportive, but I really just think that they're all overwhelmed and there just is that isn't actually a big thing. And, and so the Are You OK Day has... It, it turns out it's actually become another form of bullying. So there's yeah. clearly a lot more work to be done there. My personal thing is you need to really reach out. And that, so, as you know, I became interested in burnout because of my early life. It is a different era because it was the late 1960s, but I think the circumstances are similar enough to the pandemic that I thought it would be useful to talk about it. Yeah, so my younger sister was born with a terminal illness in the late 1960s. My father worked at the other end of Sydney and we had no relatives here. So they arrived in 1964 and this is 1967. So my mother had four children under the age of five and the youngest was dying. And that went on for 18 months and it was a complete roller coaster. And we were on the outskirts of Sydney and we were building a house. So I can't tell you how chaotic and full on it was. That's the perfect storm of just burnout in a bucket okay. there. <laughs> so three weeks after my sister died, my, my mother's father, who she adored, he died of emphysema. A year or so later, her mother became ill with breast cancer. And some other time in about that period, my other grandfather died in England. So then about four years after that, my father became terminally ill. So like talk about a lot to manage over a long period of time and a lot of burnout. So my mother's a very active person. she goes singing and she loves tennis and she really engaged in a lot of those committees and everything but the and she she started work as soon as she could but what she didn't do is she never sought psychological support so mm. I really when I think back about what where is the sort of biggest challenge in with her in her all her relationships across the board is that she could never own that she needed help and she could never reach out to anybody she was so afraid to not see herself as capable so I think really that asking for help is about being kind to yourself so you can be kind to others so in terms of educating yourself with employers I, I can only say to employers that you know, if you're a CEO or you're a manager, reach out to staff and offer support. But I would never, if I was floundering, I wouldn't go to my manager and say, I can't cope. I just think that's going to mm. backfire. So we are talking a political sort of thing on this show. So there is a federal election next year and only one of the parties is actually offering to increase the amount of childcare support. So I think that's really important. Yeah, so I think that's that's what I would say. I mean, it was pretty intense for a, for a long time. You can see why I failed school. So it was pretty intense. There's a lot going on. <laughs> a lot going on. My parents were really, you know, just having to manage all that. So, yeah, I think that it is just that's why I'm so, you know, I'm really engaged with taking care of your body and your mind. And and if you don't if you don't do both of those, 
it'll just fall over. There's just no two ways about it. Absolutely. Who've been your greatest mentors? Is there one or two that come to mind and what have they taught you? So I have two. My father died in England. It's a bit of a complicated story. I think having seen all these family members die and he then became ill, he, he really saw how awful it was for the carers. So one day we came home from school to find that he'd written us letter saying goodbye. And this is 1980, so this is before we could track anybody. We knew, you know, you couldn't find people in those days. And six weeks later, we received a call saying he died in England at St. Christopher's Hospice. So 10 years later, when I arrived in living in London, as many of us do in our early 20s, I arranged to meet the person who started the hospice movement. So she, her name's Cecily Saunders, she's died now. When I met her, I thought she was about 50 or 60, but turns out that a relative of my mother's had actually known her when she was a young woman 30 years earlier. So she was actually in her 80s when I met her and she looked to me like 50 or 60 and so that was, you know, quite remarkable. So for me, what was so amazing about meeting her was that, you know, I was an attractive young woman in my early 20s and used to being objectified and sexualized and everything. But she looked at me in a completely different way. So she saw my soul very much in distress, but she couldn't see the skin and bones. It's really a really different way of being seen. And it was, it was, I realized that seeing a person when seeing a person's soul means that that's when they are seen and she was quite an such an interesting person because she was strong but she wasn't hard and she was compassionate but she wasn't cloying so kind of all these contradictions she really helped me to understand that there's a way of seeing people that can change them fundamentally and so I kind of always have her in my mind about so how, what does it mean to see a person and can I, I, I guess, see a person better? And the other person is associated with my partner and basically I think you've heard of Eckhart Tolle, somebody else. Yes. Yeah. So I have somebody from my, my partner's family who's at that level of enlightenment, who's a spiritual leader, and we've just started connecting in the past few weeks, and so we Zoom each Saturday, and he's really guiding me on how to see the world differently. So that tracky idea of seeing the world differently, you go, it took a different form, but that's that's what it is. So those two people really help me see people differently, see life differently, see the world differently. So that's what I appreciate. They're great examples, really good ones to share. As we wrap up today, what would be your final takeaway message for anyone navigating the politics of burnout? Really, if you want it to be different, you're going to have to change. And, you know, you really need to just get support. So for practical ideas, see a life coach, for psychological support, get counselling. Like there's an organisation called Rough Patch in Sydney. They're really good. For marriage support, see a couples counsellor. For personality support, you know, you've got that personality style, which is enduring character. Or for moral injury, where there's a bit of trauma, you really need to see a psychodynamic psychotherapist. So, you know, this pandemic will absolutely have long-term psychological wear and tear. There will be effect. There will be an, an effect on your relationships. And, you know, if you see somebody with some sort of psychological support, you can really nip that in the bud to make to sort of reduce the negative side of it and make it a positive 
That's been some fantastic and very well-timed advice, I think, for lots of people. And if you do want to connect further with Wendy Nash, there will be some details on the show notes. Until next time, keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.